I have a question for you. What are you doing to support women to leadership positions in your organisation? From all of the work I have done with both individuals and organisations, I have compiled my learnings on this issue in my new guide, 15 Ways to Support Women in Leadership. You can download it for free at happieratwork.ie forward slash resources. The guide addresses not only the individual responsibility of us as women looking to get to those leadership positions, but also the challenge of creating a supportive environment. A reminder of that address, happieratwork.ie forward slash resources. You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. Through a combination of solo episodes and interviews with some incredible guests, we bring you the insights and practical tips to create happier working environments for you and your teams. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague and leaving a rating or review on your favorite platform. If you're feeling like your anxiety is at a place where you're avoiding things that you used to Mm. like to do, or you show up at work and you can't concentrate and you just stare into space or scroll Instagram for hours, please get help. Because the good thing is that anxiety is really common. It's the most common mental illness in the world and it's part of the human condition. And so there's wonderful treatment. My guest on the podcast today is Maura Ahrens-Mealy. And she is the author of a new book called The Anxious Achiever, which I'm in the middle of reading at the moment, and also a podcast of the same name. Now, as you may have gathered from the title, we are talking about being anxious. And while I don't consider myself an anxious person, I can absolutely relate to a lot of what Maura talks about, both in her book and on today's podcast episode. So we're talking about things relating to overachieving, although we haven't necessarily explicitly said that, but the anxious achiever, people who are really driven to do stuff, they're just internally driven. As always, I'll be doing a summary at the end of some of the key points that we talked about today and maybe some things that you may do differently as a result of listening to today's episode. So do stay tuned for that. And I'd love to hear if you have done anything different, if you can relate to any of the topics that we talk about today on the episode. And all of my social links are on my website, happieratwork.ie. Maura, you're so welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I know we've had this planned for a few months at this stage, and I've been really, really looking forward to speaking to you as my guest today. Do you want to let people know a little bit about your background, who you are, and a bit of your career history? Sure. Thanks, Eva. It's great to be here. So I wrote this book because... I have been an anxious achiever for decades at this point. I am sort of a person whose baseline is very high anxiety for whatever reason, nature, nurture, chemistry, who knows. And, you know, I have had to manage my own mental health very intensely. I have um, bipolar 2 disorder, and so I've had periods of intense creative hypomania and then deep depression as well. But throughout it all, I have a kind of very highly anxious baseline. And through managing this and talking to lots of other people and studying, I have really learned to integrate mental health health into my showing up every day and my leadership. And I think it's really, really important that we do that. You know, we're, Mm. we're really scared of talking about mental illness, certainly, but mental health in general. 
in the context of work. And yet we all have it. And almost 90% of us at some point in our life will be mentally ill. Mm. And so it's really, really important that instead of fighting it, ignoring it, working it away, drinking it away, you know, all the things we do to try to not feel uncomfortable feelings that we get in touch with it. And I, and I hope that that's what my work with the Anxious Achiever does. You know, my mm-hmm. goal is really to present both tools and strategies, but stories of yeah. successful, passionate people who manage both mental illness and being mm-hmm. neurodivergent in a world that expects a typical brain, whatever that yeah. is. Well, this is it. What, you know, what is typical anymore? Um, And I love this because it is this idea of mental health. And I think it's one of the taboos that still exists at work. So we're talking about diversity and inclusion. We're talking about bringing in diverse minds and things like that. But still people are afraid, I think, to open up and, and to share about what's going on for them from a mental health perspective. And exactly as you say, we all have mental health and Maybe that mental health goes into the mental illness stage or it, it kind of goes more on the perceived negative side of things. And it's just not something that people are as open about. And I'm in the middle of reading your book. I haven't finished it just yet. But, it, you know, you're so right in the stories of all of these amazing people who've had incredible achievements, despite this perception of like, wow, that person has a really high anxiety or something. So. I'd love to kind of take that as a jumping off point for our conversation, this idea that anxiety can be used or can be seen as a superpower rather than something that's debilitating. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to sugarcoat things ever. You know, mental illness is awful and terrible and scary. Anxiety can be both. Anxiety exists along a spectrum. We're all anxious at times because it's a very natural human emotion and it's actually helped keep us alive for millennia. You know, so it's normal to feel anxious. And certainly anybody who is pushing themselves for achievement or just human is going to feel anxious, right? So we we have to accept that anxiety is part of life. And sometimes anxiety is very motivating, right? It's the anxiety that we feel before we're about to take the stage or Mm. meet a deadline or do something we care about. Anxiety is problematic when it's chronic, Mm. when it gets in the way of our day-to-day life when we start avoiding things. And, you know, anxiety can slip into illness territory, disorder territory, when we do find ourselves feeling like, you know what, I'm going to avoid going to that event because I'm too anxious about it, or I can't sleep because my brain feels like it's literally on fire. You know, that's when we need help. So anxiety runs along a spectrum. And the brilliant thing about learning to understand how your own anxiety shows up for you is that you can manage it, right? Mm. Anxiety is malleable. You can't control it and maybe you can't cure it, but you can manage it and learn from it. And that's really what I want to help people do. Yeah. Yeah. To really understand. And that was another thing that I picked up on. It's really growing in self-awareness. So what is this trying to tell me? And do you have any examples that you'd like to share in relation to that? Like, how can we use what's going on for us to learn about ourselves? I mean, 
I think that's the quest of leadership, right? <laughs> we, we, we know that the best leaders are self-aware leaders. Yes, yeah. And a huge piece of that is how our brain and our emotions show up every single day, right? I mean, that's the essence of who we are. Mm. And so anxiety is a key piece of that. And I think what's really important is that you may never be able to control what triggers you because life is hard and uncontrollable and we are all triggered by different things. And we can't stop that, right? We can't control other people. We can't control a global pandemic. We can't control scary things, but we can learn to manage how we react. And Mm. I find that really, really empowering. You know, I think that understanding how we react to anxiety. I love to tell the story of Harley Finkelstein, who is president of Shopify, which is a you know multi-billion dollar e-commerce platform that probably you've used whenever you've bought some of your favorite things on the internet. You know, and, and, and Harley is an anxious achiever. He's said that to me on, when we interviewed. And, you know, for many years, anxiety really powered his entrepreneurship. He had mm-hmm. experiences as a child and in his family of origin that led him to always be pushing to start new businesses, to trying to achieve financial freedom and push through. And, you know, for for years as a young man, he acknowledges that it it was difficult to be around him because of that. He was hmm. he was so driven. And, you know, when we're anxious, sometimes we don't react in the best ways, right? We lash out, we become angry, we try to control things. But when he got in touch with it, when he went to therapy, when he learned techniques and skills and began taking care of himself, and for him, meditation was very powerful, he learned that anxiety for him is a key part of who he is. He can't Mm. change that, but it also makes him the incredible entrepreneur that he is. But that he also needed to tell his team, hey, listen, when I get anxious, I get in the weeds a little bit. This is what I tend to do. And you need to know that. And you need to talk to me about it. Mm. Like, don't be afraid to push back, right? Because I might get micromanaging or I might be more controlling or I just might be like really, really intense, right? I yeah. think we can all relate to that. Mm. And I want this to be a conversation. Yeah. And I think that that's incredible. Like, who doesn't want to work for a leader who can say, listen, I have great qualities and I have some not so great qualities and here's how they show up. Yeah. And I want you to know that. And like, can we dialogue about this? Mm. Because that then opens people up to be their own selves as well. It does. It creates that safe environment, not only to have that conversation and as someone on the receiving end of being micromanaged and being where your boss is in the weeds with you and you're like, how do I feel about this? But he set the scene to say, listen, if I get like that, this is why. And you can feel free to push back to me and say, hey, you're doing it again. You're in the weeds with me and you don't need to be, everything's under control or whatever it might be. But to have that level of self-awareness, but then exactly as you say, the kind of secondary part of that is creating that safe environment for other people to say, and this is how I am and this is what triggers me and this is how I show up in the workplace. And maybe this is where I, I need some support or you, you'll you know that I'm anxious because I'm doing X, Y, and Z. One of the areas in which I wish I had been able to say that, but wasn't is, and I've talked about this before, but I don't think I talk about it in the book is, you know, I have a real anxiety around blizzards, violent snowstorms that we get here in the East Coast of America um, because of a a traumatic experience when I was younger. And um, when I was a consultant and I would travel for clients, 
sometimes this would really impact me. And, and there was one time where I was in Washington, D.C. for a very important event with a very important client. And there were reports that a blizzard, a huge blizzard was going to hit my home in Boston. And I had little babies at the time and I became so anxious. I booked a plane and left the event in the middle of it when I was wow. supposed to be working. Mm. And I wish I could have said to my client, even before I traveled, mm. I can't do this. I yeah. could have set boundaries. I could have sent someone else. Yeah. But instead, I just panicked and left, which was not a good look. And mm. so, you know, it's your choice. Like maybe I wouldn't have said in the middle of the event, my anxiety is spiking because I have had a traumatic experience with a blizzard and I have PTSD, but I could have figured out a solution if I had mm. had that self-awareness. Yeah. It didn't have to be so extreme or like you say, uh, this idea of boundaries and Something that springs to my mind, you know, even before the event, is it a people-pleasing thing that you don't want to come across as being someone who lets other people down? So you say yes, and then you get yourself into this difficult situation that you need to then get yourself out of because yes. you haven't created those boundaries, essentially. Yes, I'm sure many of your listeners will be understanding that and nodding their heads. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Myself included. <laughs> you know, you say yes to things and Typically, I'll say yes, and I just, I follow through and I just go, if I say yes to something, then, you know, you know, it's definitely going to happen. But yeah, it's it's hard, I think, sometimes to get out of those those types of situations. You brought up something important there that I know that you raise in the book, and that's dealing with our younger selves, essentially. So anything that we're facing, whether that's triggers in the workplace or triggers kind of in our day-to-day -day lives, they're typically from something that has happened to us in childhood. Whether you consider that to be a major trauma or not. It could be just something that happens and it's something that you're afraid of or something that brings up this feeling of anxiety in you. And I know certainly I have uh, at least two that I can think of top of mind in relation to that. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? In how do we address those issues? So how do we start looking at, well, what happened to actually drive this feeling or drive this behaviour? Yeah. You know, triggers is such a complicated word and concept. It's an uncomfortable word because a trigger is a gun. And so yes. I, in the field, you'll hear people talking more about being activated. Right? Okay, Activators. Yeah. I still often use triggers because everyone knows what it means. It's also a word that's been weaponized in politics in the U.S. because there's a sense that if you're triggered, you're weak. Ah, right? okay. Yeah, yeah. You aren't strong. You can't yeah. show up. You're at the, you're beholden by your emotions or whatever exactly. it might be. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not true. Everybody has triggered, triggers. We're triggered all the time. Mm. And we have to learn to deal with them. As I said earlier, we can't stop them. We can't avoid them. We can't hide in our, in our bedrooms and just shut the world out, right? Everyone has vulnerabilities and they're different for everyone. What makes me anxious is probably not what makes you anxious, right? They're very individual based on our life experience, who we are, right? A lot of us are sensitive. And so we're triggered by light and noise and activity or space, physical changes. And so we have to accept that. We have to understand them hmm. and we have to develop tools to move through them, right? I mean, I so I really don't want people to think, oh gosh, I'm triggered. I can't. It's, oh gosh, I'm triggered. How do I deal with this yeah. and manage yeah. it, right? Mm. Like let's, let's, let's create a more 
strengths-based approach. And so work triggers us because people are jerks and work is hard and it's overwhelming <laughs> and all the things. I'm glad you said it. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> and money, you know, money is a huge yeah. trigger for most of us for mm. whatever reason. We are we are very anxious in the presence of thinking about money, its scarcity, its value, mm. what it says about us, right? We're triggered by other people. Do they like us? Do they hate us? Do they respect us? All those things. And so I really encourage people to sort of play detective, as my friend Rebecca Harley says, who's a, a mass general, you know, really understand what is individual to me and what are my triggers and, and how do I know they're showing up? Like, what's mm. my radar for them, yeah. right? Oftentimes it shows up in our body. We get really tense. Our stomach starts to rumble and jump or heartbeats really fast or we feel like we have to go take a nap or we reach for a glass of wine or we reach for that Snickers bar or we shut our laptop and avoid, right? Start paying attention to your body, your thoughts and your behaviors because then you really understand, wow, you know, Aoife triggers me when she comes at me at 8 a.m. with six emails in a row. Yeah, I have an answer for that. <laughs> I was watching, I don't often go on to TikTok, but occasionally I do. And I went on to TikTok and it was all of these different descriptions for if people do certain things that are triggering, let's say, in the workplace. And one of them was sending multiple emails throughout the day and how to respond to that. So I got a laugh out of that now. Um, if you wouldn't mind consolidating all of your emails into one email, it would make me, it would help me to keep track and make sure I don't miss anything. I think with, you know, with real formal language of instead of saying, why the hell are you sending me six emails in a row? You know, but I just thought having those, having those approaches or having that language to use when people do that, I think is really helpful as well. I think it's really helpful. And look, sometimes that language is going to backfire. Like I'm a realist, you know, I think that work is work. And so if all those emails are triggering you, but it's your boss, maybe you can't say that to them. Yeah. But the knowledge that this is triggering you and that, okay, I got this. Like, maybe it's not even about me. The boss is sending them because they're anxious. Yeah. They're under pressure. That's very liberating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So thinking about it from the other person's perspective, what is the intention behind what's going on? Yeah there as well. And I love this idea of noticing your body, your thoughts and your behaviors. And I suppose, if you know, to share a personal example, I think things in relation to other people that trigger me, I'm very aware or very conscious of being excluded from things, having been excluded as a as a young girl from things. So, you know, if I notice I'm not included in a WhatsApp group or if I'm not included in a night out or a weekend away or something like that, that's very triggering for me. And it's something I have noticed. I love what you say as well about what's the behavior associated with that then? So are we completely avoiding it? So we're not yeah. reading the emails at all because it's triggering us. Are we reaching for the Snickers bar? Are we re reaching for the wine? Are we drinking our way through it to avoid it? Are we working our way through stuff to avoid how we feel essentially? It's, it's what we do. We just we have our default modes, I suppose. And, and again, I know it's something that you talk about in the book, this default behavior and noticing what that is and, and showing some self-compassion when you are behaving in that way and knowing why you're doing it. Absolutely. You know, we, we cope. Our brain doesn't want us to feel upset. 
Yeah. So our brain learns that when we take a drink of wine, we don't feel upset. So then our brain says, oh, okay, well, next time I feel this way, let's take a drink of wine because then we won't feel upset. I'll right. Feel and then better. Yeah. exactly until yeah. you don't. So then yeah. a habit forms. And so part of it is, you know, I made a deal with myself for many years back to my consultant traveling woes and anxiety that flying for me made me very, very anxious, especially when my kids were very little that I was just going to take Xanax when I flew. You know, it was sort of a deal I made. I said, this is a coping mechanism. I don't know how healthy it is, but you know what? I'm just going to, this is okay for me. Like I'm going to accept it because I just have to get through the day. You know, and sometimes we have our coping mechanisms and we think, okay, I'm going to do this. You mm-hmm. know, we it, our, one of our coping mechanisms might be overwork. It might be staying at the office too late or always being on our email. Mm. And there are some times where we might say, you know what, I know this is an anxious behavior, but I'm okay with that right now. It's just what I got to do to get through. Yeah. And then sometimes we look at our behavior and we think, this isn't serving me. This isn't healthy for me. And we want to change it. Yeah. Because I was going to say, on the one hand, you have your coping mechanisms and I'm diving into work right now because I don't want to feel these feelings and I need to, I need to kind of get this out of my system or I need to move through it whatever it might be, versus the total and utter avoidance of what it is that we're feeling. So maybe striking the balance between that self-compassion and saying, okay, this is what I need to do for myself right now to help me feel better versus, okay, this is not going to serve me in the long term. So how do I, how do I create maybe, um, I'm very reluctant to use the word kind of bad or better, but like, how do I, how do I create a coping mechanism that better serves me? I mean, it's all about mindfulness, right? Yeah. It's about the intention and and it's about really taking back the moment between the stimulus and response. That's what it's about. And yeah. in the book, I do have a chapter about bad habits and unhelpful reactions, you know, and and I think that like with me and my Xanax and my flying, I sort of said, this is a bad habit. Mm. But right now as a like working mom running a business with three little kids who has to be on a plane every week. I'm accepting this habit. I, I don't have time to take a fear of flying course and, and work through this. I'm just yeah. going to pop a Xanax. And I don't say this to be like, oh, I'm so great. I say this to say sometimes, even if we're mindful about an unhelpful reaction, <laughs> at least we're a little bit more in control. Yeah, it's a, it's a sense of control, but it's also the intention and the awareness around it as well, isn't it? It's not just default mode. I have no idea what's going on. I just feel terrible and I'm going to take a Xanax because I want to make myself feel better. It's yeah. I have this awareness. I know what's going on and I'm very deliberately taking this so that I can manage better, so that I can cope better with that what's I can going function. on. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. One of the things that has intrigued me in the book is this concept of over and under functioning. Do you want to kind of let people know a little bit more about the background associated with that and, and what they actually mean? Yes. So this is a concept from family systems theory or Bowenian theory, which is fascinating and I think very helpful for anyone who has a family, who has parents and who has come from a family. (laughs) And uh, there's a woman, Dr. Kathleen Smith, who I love her work. And she's a a Bowenian psychologist. And so we delve into this in the book because, you know, When you think about it, we live in systems, right, Mm. of people, of organizations, of hierarchy, of status. And 
families are systems, right? They're closed systems. You might have a parent or two parents. You might have siblings. You might have cousins, grandparents, whatever. And in the system, for it to function, we all have a role. Hmm. We don't always choose that role. That role isn't always healthy for us, but we play a role to keep the system functioning as a kind of closed loop. And many of us who become anxious achievers, who are very driven, very ambitious, successful, but almost powered by anxiety, by a sense of, if I don't keep achieving, the world will stop. People won't love me. I'll be a failure. All the labels we put on ourselves come from a family system in which we learned our role was to overperform, was to protect was to dive in and solve things, was to take care of mom and dad, was to grow up before our time. And we become what is called overfunctioners, which I think a lot of people might be nodding their heads and thinking, oh my gosh, this is me. Overfunctioners are people who literally sort of swoop in and make sure that things get taken care of. Mm. But for you to be an overfunctioner, there has to be an underfunctioner, and that's where it gets tricky, right? Mm. And this plays out a lot in work because those of us who have overfunctioned, and I am a hundred percent. I grew up um, with a single mom, oldest sister. You know, really sort of learned at a young age to take care of things, help my mom, also keep an eye out for what I perceived as threats. Mm. A lot of children who grow up in alcoholic families will relate to this, where. You know, a parent feels like they're not so stable, so the kid swoops in and takes care. They're overfunctioning, And it's a role we learn to play. And when we learn to play it, we often get rewarded for it. Yeah. And at work, people, you know, they reward it. The problem is you're overfunctioning. Who's underfunctioning? Is it your team? Is it your direct reports? You're exhausted because you're overfunctioning. Yeah. You're controlling, you're mm. anxious, and they learn to underperform. Yeah. Well, she's, she's going to rewrite it anyway, so why should I take the time? <laughs> she's going to tell me what to do, so why should I decide what to do? Yeah. That's not good leadership. That's just being stuck. Yeah. And so we dive into that in the book, and I, and I have to tell you for myself, you know, I have overfunction in my relationships overfunction at work. And it's been, it's been a lot of therapy and a lot of work to try to learn to cool down and let other people take space. Yeah. Yeah. I can absolutely relate to that. And just, you know, in a work context, no one likes to be thought of, or no one likes to think of themselves as the micromanager who's stepping in. And I, I'm trying to think of some solid examples where that might've happened when I worked in my corporate career. There's one particular example, but it was more frustration from me that maybe an under, I was going to say under before, under an under functioner was constantly questioning whether or not something was okay. And I had to constantly check, which was quite frustrating for me. I'm kind of like, just, just get on with it already. But definitely in my own business, I've seen examples of this where if something isn't the way I like it, I'm just going to change it anyway, instead of giving it back to the person and having that sense of trust that they know what they're doing, that they have the responsibility. And so we definitely see it playing out there. And also in my relationships, if I think, 
of friendships in particular. And it took me a while to realize this. I was always the person doing the reaching out, doing the organizing, making sure that we were kind of connected and staying connected. And, you know, for one reason or another, this is a number of years ago now, I just stopped texting. You know, I just stopped texting people. And I saw then who were the people who were reaching out to me. So, yeah. you know, it it's kind of really enlightening, I think, when you take the foot off the pedal a little bit in relationships or or even in the work context as well, what actually happens and, and what comes to, to kind of fall oh as a result God. of that. You know, and 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 I'm really obsessed with perfectionism. And I just did a LinkedIn learning course actually on navigating your perfectionism in the workplace. You know, perfectionism and over functioning really go together, but it's all driven by anxiety Mm. and it's all driven by habit. Like most of us have been behaving this way for years and we exhaust ourselves and the people around us. Mm. Yeah. We can change. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I suppose that was my, my next question. If someone is listening to this, and let's have a think about the overfunctioners first, because it might be easier to recognize if you're an overfunctioner. And maybe you even think this is a brilliant thing because you have everything under control and you're on top of absolutely everything. And you jump in when people need help and you're there to support everyone. And exactly like you said earlier, Maura, you're getting rewarded for these behaviors. So you think it's something really brilliant. So maybe let's start with with those and maybe the, the first part usually is awareness and recognizing yourself in that description but what steps can people take to kind of to move beyond that i mean i think there's two options right the first step would be to realize it and go to psychotherapy and dig in right mm. to my family to the roots of this yeah and that's really awesome mm. i recommend that everyone do it but Maybe you don't have time to do that. Maybe that's not an option for you. The other option is to take a more sort of cognitive behavioral approach and say, I'm doing this, you know, and often there's a person we do it with and that's Mm -hmm. really helpful. You know, I'm doing this with Margaret who works for me. Every time she hands me something, I rewrite it automatically. How does that make her feel? Like, why yeah. do I do this? Hmm. And literally then saying, I'm not going to rewrite it next time. Yeah. Or I'm going to schedule a meeting with her and go over it with her and give her my feedback. Hmm. Sometimes I ask people to just do little experiments, right? Like, what if I didn't dive in and schedule the meeting first? Yeah. What if I was late? <laughs> What if I didn't proofread before it went to the client? Now that might feel too scary to you. Yeah, yeah. So is there is there something a little bit smaller? But ultimately, it all comes down to a question, which is, who told me I had to be perfect all the time? Who told yeah. me I had to be special all the time? Mm. Who told me it was my job to fix things? Mm. You know, because we get rewarded for this behavior until we don't. Yeah. Ultimately, we're going to hit a wall because if we truly want to grow and delegate and lead, you know, obviously this sounds silly. Like we can't do it all ourselves and just control and grit our teeth through things. And so at some point, gonna bite you. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose I'm thinking from the organization perspective, you can't be in a senior position and 
be on top of absolutely everything that's under you, that's within your control. You have to let it go. You have to trust people and trust that they are going to take care of things and that they are going to step up and that they're capable to do that as well. Yeah. And then the other thing that's a truism that is really hard for us to understand is that we can't be equally emotionally invested in every single outcome every day. That is, again, and a habit that overfunctioners get into because the stakes feel very high if things go wrong. Mm. And again, I think a lot of you could can see a direct line back to our past. Yeah. But when every single outcome has us literally, I, I want people to think about like their muscles being tight and they're, oh, I'm so much invested. This has to happen. This is going to burn us out. It's going to burn everyone out. It's not mm. realistic. And so we have to learn to be okay with some things getting out of what we feel like is our control. Yeah. We just have to be okay with that. Hmm. Does that link then, from what you're saying, for me, there's a strong link between that and prioritization. So if you're saying I'm emotionally invested in all of these outcomes equally, all at the same time, it makes it so much more difficult to prioritize and say, well, actually, if some of these can slip through the net or if some of these don't have to be as perfect as I would like them to be, which ones are they? It makes it much more difficult to choose. Oh, yeah. 100%. That's such a great point. I really appreciate that. You know, because also it's the emotional investment that's about us. This is why this stuff, this anxiety is all a little bit narcissistic, right? Mm. Because we think that everything is about us. We think that if that spreadsheet has an error in it, it's a direct judgment on us. Yeah. And we forget about the maybe hundreds of other people involved. Yeah. And again, like if it's always about us and our own achievement and what we see as a judgment on us, well, we're not really a great manager. We're not really a great leader. We're, mm. we're, we're sort of just a very intense, worried, controlling person. Yeah. Intense, <laughs> worried, controlling. And I say that as one myself. <laughs> yes. No, I can totally relate. And and I suppose the interesting thing, I'd love to talk about the underfunctioners in a second, but I think the interesting thing for me throughout this is I would never have used the term anxiety to describe it, maybe bouts of like, oh yeah, I feel really intense feelings and maybe I'm feeling a bit anxious about something. But the behaviours that you're describing, I can absolutely relate to. But at the same time, I would never have described myself as anxious. And I'm wondering... If there's other people who are listening, maybe who exhibit those behaviors and they can't make that connection between anxiety and their behaviors, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it it feels weird to a lot of us, right? Again, because a lot of these behaviors are habits. Mm. So, I mean, to me, then the question I would ask people to think about is what's the feeling that accompanies these behaviors? Like if I could Mm. tap into the feeling and the motivation, is it a sense of worry? Is it a sense of feeling like if I don't do this, things will be bad? You know, like really drill down to the essential feeling. Because a lot of what motivates us to do what we think might be our best work is anxiety. Mm. Is a feeling that if we don't do this, the outcome will be bad, whatever that bad means. Yeah. 
uh, not only bad, but then we'll be judged on that bad exactly. outcome and we'll be thought to be this bad person who can't perform or things like that. So I'd love to kind of come back to the under functioners then and that being the kind of the flip side of the over functioners that we can't have one without the other. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and, and maybe where that stems from, what that behaviour looks like in the workplace and, and maybe what we can do about it? Yeah, I will say I know a lot less about underfunctioning than overfunctioning, <laughs> um, because of because of my focus on sort of anxious achievement. But yeah, here's the truth: underfunctioning is driven by anxiety too. Okay, a lot of perfectionists are underfunctioners. Okay, because when we're so worried about an outcome, yeah, and what it says about us, we might avoid it. Yeah, we might was, procrastinate mm -hmm. it. So a lot of underfunctioners are equally anxious. They just learned a behavior that says, well, if I pretend like this doesn't exist, more is going to come and fix it. So that's fine. Yeah. yeah. And so we attract each other. And I might underfunction with you, Aoife, but not underfunction with someone else. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah because yeah. for some reason, our dynamic... Like we see each other. There's a chemistry mm. there. Yeah. And I've learned that if I avoid something, you're just going to come fix it. And so it's a perfect fit for me. Yeah. I'm just going to come pick it up, whatever it was that you didn't get done. And I could have someone at the other side who's doing exactly the same for me in a particular area. Maybe it's an area that I've, I'm avoiding deliberately or that I'm not interested exactly. in or not good at, whatever that might be. Yeah, I mean, some, some people are chronic underfunctioners and they mm. learn how to get by on other things, right? I think there's like, we all know the kid who's like very funny and doesn't well, do well in such a stereotype, but it, it, it happens. Very funny, doesn't do well in school, is the class clown, is the family joker. Yeah. You know, that person might have an overfunctioner who helps and takes care of logistics and solves things yeah. while my role is to be charming and funny. We've all had that dynamic with someone at work who they, the clients love them. They're so fun and they don't do any work and we do all the work. That Yeah, I can think of a few examples. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> sure people listening can think of a few examples. You know, you might call them the loafers or the coasters or whatever it might be. They're but the they ones have their charm. role. Yeah, People yeah, like yeah. them. And mm. so that's really interesting. Like, do I keep finding myself with this dynamic in my life, did I marry this person? <laughs> yeah, and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything in particular or any of the key points you feel from the book that we haven't necessarily covered today or any other points that you'd like to, to kind of make people aware of? I would just say that if any of this stuff is resonating for you, that's okay. It just means that you're human. Yeah. And I really, really would encourage people, if you're feeling like, your anxiety is at a place where you're avoiding things that you used to mm. like to do, or you show up at work and you can't concentrate and you just stare into space or scroll Instagram for hours, please get help. Because the good thing is that anxiety is really common. It's the most common mental illness in the world, and it's part of the human condition. And so there's wonderful treatments. So that's the first thing I want to say. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, you know what? This is, this is no good. Yeah, yeah. Get help. But but you also might be thinking, again, going back to this idea of the default behaviors, like now that I know this, I'm, you know, I don't, I just don't want to deal with it because that's your default behavior is avoiding things. 
yeah. or you're going to reach for the Snickers bar, or you're going to get a glass of wine while you're listening to this podcast to, to help make you feel better, you know? Yeah, I mean, I hope this, I hope this podcast hasn't triggered you too much, but, but if it has, that's data. And, you know, I think the really exciting thing and what I feel is so magical is that when we're willing to listen, anxiety can help us actually change. And then the last thing I want to say, I think, is very important from a workplace perspective, which is that we have a tendency in mental health and in self-help to put the onus on an individual to change. And when it comes to feeling anxious at work, it's very easy to say, well, go get therapy. We have a license for telehealth. Go get therapy. Things will be fine. That's not true. Anxiety, mental health is intersectional, is systemic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so everything that is bad about the systems that we work in, patriarchy, bias, racism, classism, inequality, all those things show up in the systems at work and make us anxious too. And so... It's not just about us fixing ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's about organizations understanding the role they play. Because yeah. the data is very clear that work is not great for people's mental health at this point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And again, going kind of full circle on this, what we talked about at the start, essentially we're all triggering each other with our own stuff that we're bringing, with our own emotions, with our own behaviors. And yeah, so it's, it's not probably the best place to be around other people, but hopefully this episode has given people a taste of what they can do, a taste of maybe gaining a, a little bit of self-awareness and what practical steps that they can take to address any issues that have come up because of listening or, or awareness that has come up because of listening. More at the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what does being happier at work mean to you? I, I really do think it means not waking up with a sense of dread in the morning. Yeah. And and not being afraid to be who you are. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it doesn't sound great, but at the same time, there's so many people who do wake up with a sense of dread, as in it, don't, it, it sounds like something that should be normal, not waking up with a sense of dread. But I think there are a lot of people out there who wake up with a sense of dread. Or they I know have there a, are. Yeah. the sense of dread on the Sunday night before they go into work on the Monday or the whole weekend. And I've been there myself as well. So, yeah, I love that. Just not having that. And I, and I know you referenced this pit in the stomach in, in the book as well. It's just so it's so visceral. I think that you can absolutely relate to that. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, if they want to get to get their hands on the book, what's the best place they can do that? Well, you can buy the book wherever you get your books. Um, I was just in London at Waterstones. I went to visit it. So <laughs> it was there. It's funny. And um, I haven't been to Ireland recently, but I, I hope it's available. And please listen to the podcast, The Anxious Achiever, wherever you get your podcast. And if you have a question for me, you want to reach out to me, just find me on LinkedIn and I'll write you back. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time today. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure we could have gone down lots and lots of different avenues and, and little laneways and things, but absolutely really enjoyed this conversation. And I think people listening today are going to take so much from it. Thank you so much. That was Maura Aaron's mealy of the Anxious Achiever podcast and the book of the same name. And I absolutely loved that conversation. I took so much from it as well. And I hope you did too. Now, before I go on to share some of the key points that I took away from today's episode, I wanted to remind you to get involved in the conversation. 
Do let me know what you thought of today's episode. You'll find all of my social links on the website, happieratwork.ie. So the first point that Maura made was in relation to mental illness generally and, and sharing that 90% of people will be mentally ill at some point in their life, which, you know, it's, it's a pretty shocking statistic. So this really should be, I suppose, relatable to people who've either been directly impacted by it or have been impacted through a family member or a friend or something like that. She talked about anxiety as a spectrum. So about finding that balance, about not being, I suppose, too anxious on the one end, that it's really, really debilitating, but just using enough anxiety that kind of fuels you forward. So like a lot of things in life, I think understanding it as a spectrum, I think is really important. And knowing when things are a little bit off the rails, maybe just understanding that about yourself. We talked about the fact that we are emotional creatures. So the best leaders are often the ones who are self-aware. So they know what's going on with themselves. They know what triggers them. They know how their behavior impacts on other people. And, you know, we're all triggered all of the time, essentially. But we can't control what triggers us. What we can control is how we respond to what triggers us. And I love the example that she shared from Finkelstein in relation to being self-aware. So he knows when he gets anxious and he gets into the weeds with the work that he's doing with his direct reports. And, you know, he's getting into micromanagey territory there when he feels anxious because he feels he needs to control everything. So I think a really strong example that a lot of people can absolutely relate to. We talked about how triggers are from childhood, essentially. So something that happened and it may not have been even traumatic. It may have been traumatic, but it doesn't necessarily have to have been madly traumatic to be something that triggers us then in adulthood. How we know we're being triggered is we can feel it in our body. You know, we behave differently and maybe our thoughts are racing as well. I know certainly for me, it's probably more the thoughts rather than anything else. The body a little bit, but but absolutely the thoughts. We talked about having a strengths-based toolkit. We didn't go into a huge amount of detail on this, but, uh, you know, one thing that did come up was this idea of mindfulness. And then I know certainly for myself, exercise is really, really important as well for being able to manage that. And Maura does mention that in the book as well. We talked about coping mechanisms and I suppose that maybe the good, the bad and the ugly. So reaching for the glass of wine or the Snickers bar when we're feeling a little bit triggered or when, when our emotions are running a little bit high versus doing something that maybe is, serves us a little bit better. But also with the recognition that we need to be self-compassionate and whatever is working for us in that time is really, really important to do that. So thinking about what's serving us well in the moment. I loved the idea that she shared in relation to it being a systemic issue. So it's not an individual issue. There are things out there that will trigger us. And in terms of the way I talk about imposter syndrome, I used to focus exclusively on the individual. Now I talk a lot more about the systems that we're in that is perpetuating imposter syndrome, essentially, and the changes that we need to make at that organizational level in order to help in my case, it's mostly women succeed in the workplace. So thinking about it from not just the individual interventions that we can use from an anxiety perspective, but also the systemic. So how do we work all together to make sure that, you know, we can support people going through mental health difficulties? We talked about this and this really fascinated me as well, you know, is one of the parts that I was really interested in by the book. 
because it was so relatable, if I'm honest. This idea of over-functioning and under-functioning. So over-functioning is, you know, stepping in when things aren't done maybe exactly as you would like, or you're just correcting something that people have done already. A very strong correlation with uh, perfectionism as well, wanting to control things or wanting things to be done a very specific and certain way. So if you recognize those behaviors in yourself, whether it's over-functioning, which is the stepping in or the under-functioning, which is basically leaving things for other people to pick up and just, you know, again, it's this idea of self-awareness and recognizing that in yourself. Now, the final thought I wanted to leave you with was one of the quotes that I took from today's episode, and that is when we're willing to listen, anxiety can help us change. That's it for today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed. Thank you for staying tuned for so long. Really, really appreciate you listening in today. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. And if you've made it this far, well done you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to today's episode. If you did enjoy it, please consider leaving a rating, a review or share it with a friend. I would love for you to get involved in the conversation. And also, if you'd like to know more about how I can help you or your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie.